Okay, folks, if you will, let's find Luke chapter 2, please. Luke chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 10, 11, and 12 of Luke chapter 2. Very, very familiar passage at this time of the year. Um, in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, Luke records, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Let's pray. Father, I love and adore you, God. I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to come here and to preach this message. Father God, I pray, God, um, that my heart is prepared and surrendered and ready, Father God, that I am as passionate and as excited about what I have to say today is anything I've ever said, Father, that I'm as nervous right now as any time I've ever preached, Father God, and I'm thankful for that. I thank you for the, God, for using the the physical processes of my body, Father God, to um, enliven my spirit now, Father. Bless me, God, that I can live up to the mandate you've given me, that I can preach, Father God, the message that you've given me, Father, um, in a way that is completely directed by you. That is uh, sacrificial, Father God, and, and uh, beneficial to the body. And I pray, Father God, that for anyone in this room who does not know you as Lord and Savior, that the gospel is just absolutely shouted today. God, please may we never come to this place and not have the gospel, God, just reign over us. And just reign over our proceedings. May we never play God at worship or play at church, Father but may we truly be the body of Christ. Here to proclaim, Father God, the gift of Jesus to a world desperate and sinful, Father God. Bless us today, Father God. In the name of Christ Jesus, we humbly pray. Amen. Um, Author and theologian Frederick Beckner, in a real famous book called The Magnificent Defeat, said this. He said, um, he kind of wonderfully explained the advent and and you're going to see a, an illusion here. He's kind of a literary guy also. And I think it's, it's great that he does it. He says this, For outlandish creatures like us, on our way to a heart, a brain, and courage. Don't get it right. Wizard of Oz, right? Got it? Wizard of Oz, okay. Bethlehem is not the end of our journey, but only the beginning. Not home, but the place through which we must pass if ever we are to reach home at last. You know, Beckner's words capture that weighty nature of the first coming of Christ. I mean, it's got to be heavy. And I want to make it heavy. I want to come in here and, and, and do that every Christmas until I've convinced everybody that it's got to be more important than Christmas lights. It's got to be more important than stockings. It's got to be more important than the lighting of candles. It's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be redemptive in its nature. It's got to be about the cross always. And I know it's, you can say, well, I know people could say, I don't think it's right to say, but people could say you're robbing it of its simplicity. You're robbing it of the childlike nature. Um, nobody, ever, God never told us to put that in there. God never said, make this as childlike. We made it childlike. We robbed it of its power. And now we want to preserve our work. And He wants to shatter our work. 
He wants to bring the blood to Christmas. He wants redemption to reign. That's what He wants. And so I want that too. I want to see that happen. I want to keep preaching it. He captures this weighty nature of the first coming of Christ and rightly points farther down the road to cross and grave. To sacrifice and grace as the final destination of hearts and minds redeemed by the only Savior. That's the thing we've got to always remember now, folks. We've got to remember this. Is the idea is that the world can look at this and find just a child. A cute story. Something fun from their childhood. We are always going to look by because our eyes have been opened. Their eyes are closed. Ours are open. We see this story and all we see is God. God has come. We were in our direst time and God came for His people. He couldn't let us just fail. But He came and what it cost Him was everything. It was everything. We have to see it that way because our eyes have been opened to that truth. You know, preached countless thousands of times. The miraculous nature of the coming of God to earth to die for the sins of His people has been taught and emphasized from pulpits around the globe. I am not the only guy preaching this today. And I'm, I'm certainly not the first and I'm certainly not the best. Everybody preaches this. Everybody does. Every pulpit rings with this today. However, the value of this moment in history and its impact on humanity cannot be overstated nor rightly captured. Now, I guess the way I put it this morning when speaking with my Sunday school class was this, was that all I'm doing right now is a single brush stroke in this gorgeous portrait of the coming of Christ. There's no way for me in one sermon or, or a thousand or even a million sermons to really share with you the depths of how important this truly is. All I can do is just one stroke today. And if I live to be a hundred and I get to preach it 50 more times, I won't get there. But in the united voices, that choir of men who've stood behind pulpits and preached this very message together, maybe, just maybe, by the return of Christ, would have painted that picture so glorious that heaven applauds. Maybe, just maybe, we will. But we'll keep trying until then. Christ's coming deserves to be shouted and proclaimed, written up theologically and poetically. Because it's beautiful. It's beautiful what God did for us. It must be sung about and celebrated. It's not just that we should worship on this day, but it's quite possible that singing out as loudly as we can about the glories of Jesus is maybe the only way to do it any kind of justice at all. It may be the only way to become so overcome with emotion at what God has done for His people that we can't restrain it any longer. We can't give it that Baptist stoicism that we need fire. And that only fire will, catch, will truly capture what God has done for us. 
God with us and for us is just that important. A statement of divine love and provision. God's with us. And He is for us. I don't... I can't capture the first in my brain. The notion that God would rob Himself and come here and be in this. As terrible as it is. But the notion that He's not just here. But He's for us. He's not against me. He's not my enemy. He came as my Savior. As my Lord. And as my friend. He could have rejected us. But He chose to embrace us. He could have abandoned us, but He pursued us. God truly for His people. Flying in the face of the existing logic of the time. That's another one of those things. The idea that God is with people, no one believed that could happen. Look at what Daniel records in Daniel 2.11. This is where those Chaldeans have been tasked with interpreting the dream of the king, but he won't even tell them the dream. They've got to come up with both dream and interpretation. Their response is the thing that the king has... Oh, by the way, Daniel does, doesn't he? Daniel does. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. The, the, the opinion of the time was that God does not come to the earth in the flesh, but yet He did. But yet God abandoned convention and came to be with His people. God did not come to earth for any reason. Why would they want to? They have heaven. He has heaven. Why would He want to come here? But He comes here. Heaven is their dwelling place where God dwells there. Yet when His people needed Him the most, with the weight of sin so tragically high and the required payment so infinitely large that only a perfect payment would suffice, Christ came as the God-man. The answer the true answer of every prayer ever uttered by every sinner of all time. God, rescue me from my sin. Here's the rescue. The needed sacrifice is what Jesus was at just the right moment. Understand that. Christ comes in the fullness of time. Now, I've stated this before, and I don't want to bring up difficult times. It's just the first thing my brain went to as I prayed over this. And that was how many times I've been with people who passed away. And you spend that time, folks you've never done, you spend that time with them, and you kind of hold their hand. And after a while, you just watch them breathe, don't you? And their chest rises and falls, and you count the breaths, don't you? And not to be too graphic, but you watch them count down. They take fewer and fewer and fewer till there are no more. And I've said from pulpits like this in, ser in sermons for funerals where I said, folks, those breaths were numbered. God knew before the foundation of the world exactly how many would be taken. And not one failed to be taken. He knew the span of life before the life was even created. And for Jesus, exactly the same thing was true. To the very death on the cross, He knew exactly how many breaths it would take to make a redemptive life. He didn't take one more or one less than was needed. He didn't live here with us one 
second less than was required to pay for our sins. Not one second less. Paul writes this in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Let's think about that for just a moment. It's at the right time because nothing was left to chance. The entire redemptive plan that included the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus was formulated by God before the foundation of the world. Before any sin was committed, God knew exactly how you deal with the sin that was inevitable. He knew how he would deal with it. And then we think about the Christ child who comes and lies in a manger, wrapped in cloths, fragile and frail, and yet we realize now that he was neither fragile nor frail. And who was fragile and frail? We were. We are weak. Never weak. We are weak. I'm unable to cope with my sin. He bore my sin. You know, we call Him the Lamb of God and we've said those pithy things and I've said them to make a joke in the past. But what do we know about lambs? They're born to die. They're born to die. And as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, our Lord was born not just to live, but our Lord was born to die. He died for the ungodly. You know, the events of Bethlehem began the flawlessly contrived redemptive plan of God. In place and personal from the foundation of the world. And do not you ever forget that as long as you dwell upon this earth. That it's not just for the world, but it is for your very sins. He saw you at your darkest. And the plan of salvation includes you. He saw you at your weakest and your most sinful. He saw the lowest you'd ever be. And the blood covers your sin. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.4, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, all of this set in motion before there was a sin to atone for, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And I love where that break is. In love. Love, the greatest act of love, aside from the cross, is the manger. Aside from the cross, to come as a baby, to live in the frustration of life for the good of his people, that's love. God did not just die for the world, but he personally came and died for men and women, particularly. That is why we speak of and teach atonement as particular and individual because it is a personal endeavor and not merely a wide net which snares some and loses others. He knew you. Instead, the love which our Lord holds in His heart for the chosen people of the church is best described by His symbolic words in the Song of Solomon 8.6 which say, Set me as a seal upon your heart. As a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. 
Jesus, the babe in the manger, gave Himself as the Savior on the cross, as the seal upon human hearts which guarantees salvation. You're not offered salvation. You are guaranteed salvation. Despite your stubbornness, despite your love of sin, despite your proclivity to break the heart of the Master who died from you, understand this much, you're held by Him, not by your power or your righteousness, but by His. His stubbornness keeps you. His power makes you saved. His righteousness brought you from darkness to light. And His love changed your condemnation to joy. He did this, not you. There's nothing we can depend on in ourselves. But in Him, it's confidence. The marking on the human body which declares regeneration through changed lives. He doesn't just take the soul, but He marks the body. We're marked. We're supposed to live like we're marked too. Like we belong to a Master. You know, Bethlehem's baby would soon become the strength of the love of God and the fierce jealousy of a Lord heartbroken over both the sins of His people and the cost of their freedom in terms of the blood and suffering of the only begotten Son of God. He yeah, had the Son who came. The son who was born in a manger would die horribly, gruesomely. And it broke the heart of God. Our sin did. Everything that our Lord and Savior must become for the purposes of lasting redemption was true in the manger and displayed on the cross. Everything that we think of in the manger was ready to go to the cross. Look, in our focal passage, I think there are four very specific characteristics that are uh, of both the Advent and the Gospel message that are highlighted. And these must be fully examined for us to reach that, that metaphorical point where the emphasis of the first Advent theologically spans the distance to the second. Where we stop seeing babies and we see saviors. We stop thinking of Christmas in terms, in childlike terms. And start to think of it in terms of the God who came there is coming back for His people. We need to do that. I want to enable that. Everything that the baby in the manger is, the Savior on the cross, reveals for the world's redemption. These matters are most vital to the gospel proclamation that spans the globe and begins in this very place. We're part of this today. You and I together in this sermon, in our worship service, are part of an entire choir of the church that's singing the praises of a son who came today. Today. We've got to discuss these four things very quickly. And the angel said to them, and the angel said to them, the proclamation of the birth of Christ, the realization of every promise of redemption that our Lord has made for His creation was not first given to humanity by human voices, but by those emanating from heaven. This news was so great that God sends the heavenly host to proclaim it. Creation split open so that the glory of heaven could shine through. God doesn't do that every day. He doesn't dispatch angels to bear messages every day. But He did in this case. 
the proclamation of the birth of Christ, the realization of every promise of redemption that the Lord has made for His creation was not first given to humanity by human voices, but by those emanating from heaven and instance, which should be expected according to the testimony of Scripture. David teaches in Psalm 19 verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. There are some secrets in this world that are so gigantic, so majestic in their nature, there's just simply no holding them back. The fact that people could parade through life, stumble through life blindly, and never realize that there is a divine God who orders all of creation is madness. His fingerprints are everywhere. He's not hiding. He's not hiding. He's hiding in plain sight. He's right there for the whole world to see. The infinite greatness of the everlasting God cannot be hidden, nor can it remain quiet forever. Christ is simply too overwhelming, too titanic to be ignored. Yeah, that's right. We understand this. Because if we don't declare His praises, the rocks will. He is so grand that inanimate objects will sing His praises. Literally, if you won't sing His praises, the very pews you sit on will. The walls will echo with praises of God. He's so great, nothing can hold back His praise. Nothing can diminish it. Though He came as a child with seemingly infantile weaknesses, the Scriptures declare Jesus to be majestically more than that. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 90 verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The everlasting to everlasting God laid in the manger. From, from, from infinity to infinity, the baby of Bethlehem is the eternal God. And the angels of heaven declare this to be so. Here's a reminder. Don't think he's just a child. Lots of babies have been born on this earth. Lots of important babies. Prophesied babies have been born in other places. But heavenly choirs did not announce their birth. When God comes, the heavens open up and sing His praises. When God comes, it happens. Look, fear not, He says then. For they say then, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Though confronted with the majesty of God by way of the heavenly host and all their created glory, the reminder from God is that all of this is for the good of humanity and not its harm. I could see being there, couldn't you? And all of a sudden the sky is filled with angels and that I would be sore afraid. I would fear... I've never seen anything so fantastic in my entire life. And I'll hear the glory of heaven has been shown to me. And I'm afraid. Like I say, I'm a man of unclean lips, of people of unclean lips. I'm not worthy to be in the presence of majesty. I'm not worthy to hear the words of the king. But he reminds us this is joy. This is joy, this message is. It's not a hateful message. It's not a fearful message. It's a joyful message. The joyful message of the coming of God for His people. 
The good news of Jesus Christ is only exclusively given to those who would believe. And not limited to any ethnic group or nation. Everyone deserves to hear it as much as everyone else. It belongs to those who are going to believe. But everyone deserves it. Rich and poor, white and black, it does not matter. We all deserve to hear the glory of God. As much as we can deserve eternal truth. It's not for one group or the other. Not for someone to lord over someone else. The good news of Jesus Christ is given exclusive and a limited ethnic group. The gospel is the birthright of those called by the Holy Spirit to believe. It is their joy. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The psalmist records that proper response of the believer to the gospel when he writes in in Psalm 73 verse 21, My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed. The coming of Jesus is a reason to shout and sing To applaud and to ring bells. The Son of God has come to conquer sin and death. To offer Himself as a sacrifice for our sins. The glory that was His given up. So that the righteousness of God can be bestowed upon sinful men and women. Everything that was God's, He gave up. He turned His back on. So that you and I can have that. Praise the Lord. Praise Christ. That He selflessly came to be with us. And for us. Three. For unto us is born in this day. In the city of David. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. From the kingly line. Not just any baby. But from the kingly line. The royal house of of David. The fulfillment of scriptures. Jeremiah teaches in Jeremiah 33, 17-18. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That's right. The house of the true Israel would always be reigned over. Reigned over by a man from the kingly line. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings. To burn grain offerings and make sacrifices forever. The kingly priest. The just and holy ruler who would bring the kingdom of God to the earth. That is the Christ Jesus that we worship as the God man. The fulfillment of everything that was required. Our Lord is just what the scriptures declare him to be. What is prophesied from heaven to be. Savior and Lord of the world. He Look, he must be acknowledged as both. Or he's neither to us. We're going to pool all this together and look at this and and analyze it rightly. We have to admit that when God said He was going to come and bring truth to us, He told us exactly how that truth would look and exactly how that truth must be embraced by God's people. There's no such thing as a Savior who's not a master. Theologically, being a sacrifice and not a Lord does not work. 
the passage which cut to the heart of the Pentecostal listeners, to the very core of their beings at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, which pricked their hearts and struck the killing blow, was uttered by Peter in Acts 2 verse 36, which says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Not just Lord, not just Messiah, not just Christ, not just Savior, but Lord and Christ. When they heard that, their hearts were shattered. Because see, they wanted something else, didn't they? Men always want something else. We want a Lord that we can handle, a Lord that we can manage, a Lord that we can tell what to do. We want someone to come and die and give to us, but not tell us what to do. But the Christ who died wants to bring an end to the chaos of your life. The Christ who died reigns so that He can make intercession for you. So you can be saved to the uttermost. The Christ who died came to save you from your sins. Because He is both Lord and He is Master. All that's required to save the world is the proper sacrifice at the proper time. A perfect Savior willing to die for His people and all-encompassing Lord ready to shepherd His flock. Yet we're the flock. And He stands ready, staff in hand, to shepherd us. In the manger lay both God and King, Savior and Lord, Lion and Lamb of God. All that was ever needed to bring mercy and compassion to the created order. To save from the depth of sin and the shamefulness of death. Was given in Christ that morning. All the promises of God found their yes that day in Bethlehem. All of them did. Then finally, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Look, emphasis was placed then in the message and placed now in this sermon. Do not look past the baby for a king of your own devising. Because everybody wants that. We want to define him our way. We want to dumb him down. We want to rob him of his power. Don't do that. Only one came and hope is in only the babe who would suffer and die so that he could reign eternally. That's the only place you'll ever find hope. Christ Jesus came on that morning as a child in the frustration of life so that he would be a fitting and holy sacrifice for the sins of this world. Jesus calls to hearts today to abandon their sinful ways and to embrace the child of the manger who hung on the cross of Calvary so that He could reign over heaven. That baby who came died to reign. Your heart's hero is not in the grave, but He's on the throne. The manger once occupied is now as empty as the tomb because our Lord is ascended. His word reigns and His invitation is now echoing around the world. Jesus doesn't call us to the stable but to the altar where the sacrifice is eternally and infinitely complete in Him. You're not coming to offer any sacrifice. You're coming to, to receive the sacrifice. The blood that was shed for your sins and mine. Look, the writer of Hebrews teaches us in Hebrews 10.10 10, 
That we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That sacrifice that was given, that precious child who lay in that manger, grew to manhood, who lived perfectly, who died tragically, rose triumphantly, and now reigns victoriously. That Jesus right there, that one has died so that you can live without the penalty of sin once and for all. Forevermore. Set free from bondage. Forevermore. Today the gift is given, the sacrifice complete, the throne beckons and the Savior calls. No more blood need be shed. Jesus has paid it all for our sins. I plead with you, cry out in mercy and in joy today. This is a blessed day. This is a wonderful day. This is a day of salvation in which salvation has come for the people of God. Repent of your sins and believe if you never have before. If you've never done that, repent of your sins and believe. Love the Savior today for the first time because His death was truly and particularly for you.